Hey, my name is Doug Rouse. I get to be the pastor at New River Church, and this is our podcast. We hope you feel inspired and encouraged as a result of today's message. If you'd like more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org. So Leviticus 26, verse 12 is our scripture that we're looking at this season. And would you read it with me? It goes like this. God is speaking. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Leviticus 26, 12. Isn't that beautiful? Do you hear the heart of God? This is grace. What is it about us that catches God's eye and makes him want to walk with us? Nothing. What is it about us that makes us just so worthy of calling God our God and him being called our God and us calling, you know, him, him calling us his people? What makes us so worthy of that? Nothing. This, my friend, is grace. Last week, we said that as we prepare to dig into the book of Leviticus, we need to lay down these two important concepts. One is holiness and the other is grace. So last week, we talked about holiness. This morning, we need to talk about grace. Last week, we learned that God's holy and God expects us to be holy. And we learned that holiness is not just being a prude with your turtleneck hiked up around your chin and your Bible weighs 20 pounds and your lips purse like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Like, that's not holiness. Holiness is actually a return back to the original way of God, the way that he ordered the world to function. God designed the world with specific borders. He designed it to be divided between night and day earth and sky, land and sea. God created the world with natural divisions. This is how he put things in order. But we learned last week that our sin rebels against God's order. Our sin thinks that we know how to order the world better than God can order the world. And so we push God to the fringe. We blur the lines that God has set up in creation, and this creates chaos and confusion, and ultimately, it leads to slavery. This is the story that we found being told in Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. We learned this. This is a review. Learned this last week. So God delivered the people of Israel from the clutches of slavery in Egypt, and he began to live among them, as our memory verse says. God says, I will be your God. I will walk among you. This is wonderful. And as great as this is, it's not everything that God intends, because God wants to do more than live around people. He actually wants to live with us. He wants to walk with us. See, this is a return back to the Garden of Eden when God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That relationship was broken. But God is desiring to bring us back to that place where we can walk with him again. And this is our memory verse. God declares, I will walk among you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God but this poses a problem, doesn't it? Because we learned last week, God is holy, we are not. 
And because God's holy and we are not, we cannot just walk with God like there's nothing wrong. You see, God is holy, and we can't have him tone down his holiness. We actually need God to be holy. We learned this last week. We need God to be holy. Like, we depend on his holiness literally for our very lives. His holiness is what makes everything good about him good. It's, he is ultimate goodness, perfect perfection. He's all of that. And, and he can't, you know, we trust him as God because he's holy. If he were to cease to be holy at all, even for a moment, you and I couldn't trust him. We couldn't depend on him. Everything would fall apart. So God can't diminish his holiness in order to relate with us. And you and I can't just make ourselves holy in order to get along with God. You ever tried to have a perfect day? Yeah, it doesn't work too well, does it? I get about as far as breakfast, and it's all downhill from there, right? So, so I can't make myself holy enough to be able to walk with God, so now what do I do? Well, you and I don't do anything except receive. God makes a way for us to be holy, and this is the theme of our study in Leviticus. God makes away. It's the first time in the Bible when God communicates to people, hey, this is how we can have a relationship. God makes a way for us to walk with him. And this is what we call grace. Grace, because you and I don't deserve to have a way made for us, given all that we've done. This is grace. In the Bible, grace is defined as divine favor. God has favor towards us. And I think about this. Every relationship requires grace to work, doesn't it? And nowhere is this more evident than in our relationship with God. Have you ever thought about that? How much grace is required just in your own day-to-day friendships, in your own marriage, your own family? I mean, we're constantly, are we not? Constantly making room for each other. You have to. I mean, if, if, you have, if you have any hope of ever having any friends, <laughs> grace has to be a part of the equation or it's not going to work. And nowhere is that more evident than in our relationship with God. I mean, consider the difference between us and him and how much grace he extends to you and me in order for us to have a relationship with him. But, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking, you know, but I also... Um, need to have grace for God. Like I, this is partly a two-way street in a sense because think about it, God is perfect. And how much, how often has his perfection caused problems for you? Have you ever been baffled by God? You ever wondered why did God do this? Why did that, why don't you just bend on this, God? Why don't you just compromise on that, God? Why don't you, why do you have to be so God-like, right? You ever been frustrated with the perfection, right? I think, okay. And then as I was thinking about that this morning, then I was reminded, oh, yes, but, however, um, I have no way of even being able to measure how much grace God has had to have in order to extend himself to me. (laughs) I mean, anyway, to be totally upfront with you, We talk about grace, 
It doesn't, the word cannot be found in the book of Leviticus. The word grace doesn't appear there. In fact, the word grace doesn't appear at all in the entire Old Testament. The word grace is only found in the New Testament in your Bibles. Now, that's because there's not a single word in Hebrew that translates as grace. Hebrew is the language that the Bible, that the Old Testament was written in originally. There's not a word that gets translated as grace specifically. However, the concept is absolutely there. And there are multiple Hebrew words that kind of go together that that communicate it. Here's, here's what I mean, and forgive me if you're a Hebrew expert and I'm butchering the pronunciation, but here are the, the four words. There's the word kanan, the word kanan, which means to be gracious, to show favor, to be inclined towards someone. It was used uh, in reference to a king that would, have, that would be inclined towards someone who comes into the throne room. You know, the king looks with favor. They, they, they would sometimes would lean out their scepter as if to say, I receive you. That's the idea. That's kanan. It's to be inclined towards, to show favor towards someone. Or there's the word chesed. Hesed is popular in modern evangelicalism. I know some of you ladies with the women of faith and some of the, I think is it the, some of the mops materials. There's some pretty popular books that have come out lately that talk about chesed, and it literally means loving kindness, loving kindness. It's probably the most popular word. And then there's the word ratzan, which means to accept, to receive. And then there's the word naem which means to delight in someone, to find someone delightful, beautiful. So you can see like all these words, like there's not one of them that says grace, but you put the four of them together and, and they absolutely merge together and imply grace. So the word grace doesn't come into play until we get into the New Testament, but it doesn't take much to see God's grace, to see God's divine favor in Leviticus. I mean, for starters, we got the very fact that, we've, that God desires to walk with us, our memory verse. That's grace. God is open to that, right? He doesn't have to, yet for some reason he's chosen. His favor is on us, and he moves close to us. Many people don't associate the book of Leviticus with grace, and I bet you've probably never thought that either. We look at Leviticus, and we see the rules we see the blood. You see the stories where guys are like struck dead because they do something wrong. <laughs> and you say, there's not a lot of grace there. <laughs> and yet, I think as we go through today, you will discover that God demonstrates a great amount of grace in the book of Leviticus. And it's beautiful. Before we go any further, there's two important precepts we have to lay down before we get into the book. The first precept is this. Precept number one, grace and truth always stay together. You can't separate one from the other. To understand grace, I need to understand truth. And to face the truth, I need grace. In John chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't just 50-50. He's not 100%, you know, he's not half truth, half grace. He was actually 100% grace, 100% truth. He blended them perfectly together. Um, we see it at work when Jesus dealt with the woman caught in the act of adultery. 
It's a famous story in Jesus' life. And Jesus looks at her and he tells her, I don't condemn you. Hmm, that's grace. Isn't that sweet? But then he turns around and he says to her, go and sin no more. That's truth. Jesus blended grace and truth together perfectly. You see, truth says you're a sinner. Grace says I don't condemn you. Without truth, grace doesn't really matter, if you think about it. Why do I need grace if I haven't done anything wrong? Why do I need grace? Why do I need favor if I'm just the best guy ever and, Lord, you deserve to have me on your team? Like, I, right? I need truth. Truth is what makes grace so much, so valuable. Um, what's the use? See, without grace, let me flip it, but without grace, truth doesn't help. What's the use in telling someone that they're a loser if you don't have the solution for helping them to turn it around? So we need truth and grace, grace and truth. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of ours who was a neighbor, um, I took him to the ER in the middle of the night. Um, he, had, he was a, an alcoholic and had been um, on a binge, and uh, his wife called me in the middle of the night. We took him. It was kind of an emergency deal, get him to the ER, and he was bleeding, um, and he had these sores on his skin, and he um, had lost a, a lot of weight because, you know, you drink a, a lot of hard liquor, and, and it, your body can't absorb the nutrients that you eat. And so, I mean, he was just a mess, a mess, a mess. And he sits there in the ER, and the doctor said, you're going to die. That's truth. That's hard to hear, isn't it? You're going to die. If you don't stop drinking, if you don't change, you're going to die. You're killing yourself. And then here comes the grace. But listen, if you want to change, if you want help, we've got help. See, I can get you upstairs. I can get you admitted. And we can get you dried out. And we can get you counseled. We can get you some help. We can get you through this. Get you, right? That's grace. See, truth and grace go hand in hand. Um, let me just summarize it this way. Uh, grace without truth is meaningless. And truth without grace is harmful. It hurts. And so we need both. And, and this, my friend, I think this is part of the problem that you see. This is, this is what the mistake that a lot of evangelicals make is we love talking about grace. And, and if you don't talk about sin, then grace doesn't really matter. See, see, it's only half a gospel if all you talk about is Jesus is the Savior. Well, what's he saved me from? Why do I even need a Savior? See, the gospel is both of those. It's, it's we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. This is what Scripture says. There is a hell, and every one of us is going there. This is what Scripture teaches. Grace, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Grace. See how the two go together? So you don't ever want to separate them. Truth and grace always 
our partners together. And you see this in the book of Leviticus. And the second precept that we've got to lay down is this. Every healthy relationship needs boundaries. Healthy relationships need boundaries. Many people think that because we're under grace, we don't have to follow any rules. That's just plumb silly. <laughs> to, claim, to claim that I'm under grace, you know, doesn't mean that I don't follow rules. I'm in a relationship. Relationships have boundaries. Listen, grace means that I didn't earn God's favor. It doesn't mean that there isn't some work I've got to do. I like the way Dallas Willard said it. Dallas Willard was a Christian philosopher and a super smart guy. He said, grace is not opposed. He said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Well put. Grace is opposed to you earning your way to heaven. You don't earn salvation, but it's not opposed to effort. There's still an awful lot of work to be done in your relationship with Jesus. You know, like the discipline of memorizing scripture, for example, there's work to be done in our relationship with Jesus, see? So it, it, God loves me because he's love. I didn't earn his love. He doesn't love me because I'm just so gosh darn lovable and worthy of love. No, he loves me because he is love and that's grace. I don't earn his favor but I still have a lot of work that I need to do. Years ago, uh, James Dobson, Dr. James Dobson, um, the focus on the family guy, he said this in relationship to parenting, and it's a great quote, actually. He says, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. That's a good line, great, great advice for parents, good principle. But if I might, kind of, if I might sort of steal from that a little bit, and tweak it, uh, it can be applied to all relationships. And, and that would be this. I would say any relationship without rules comes to ruin. Any relationship without rules comes to ruin. Uh, every married guy who's halfway smart knows this principle. Right? Guys, how about this? There's rules. There's rules, man. There's rules in marriage, aren't there? Like, for example, uh, I don't flirt with other women. Believe it or not, there's guys that don't know that rule. Dummies, right? How about, how about this rule? Uh, the, here's another rule. Uh, I don't treat my bride like she's a dude, right? She's not one of the guys. Believe it or not, I know guys that don't know that rule. They suffer for it. I'm like, that's a... You, you need to know that rule. She's a girl. Treat her like that. Treat her with the respect, the honor, the love, the cherish, all of that that she's worthy of, right? She's not one of the boys. Or how about this one? You know, there's only one right answer to the question. Do these jeans make me look fat? There's only one right answer to that question, and it's not always the truth, okay? That's just the, and that's a rule that you follow. My point is this, every relationship has rules. If it's a healthy relationship, it's got rules. It's got boundaries that you stay within in order to keep the relationship healthy. And you're in a relationship with God. That's awesome. It's because he's had grace on you. But if your relationship with God's going to be healthy, there are still rules in that relationship. There's still things you've got to do. If I'm going to enjoy friendship with God, then guess what? My values need to line up with his. 
They need to align with his values. And if you have a problem with that, it's only because you still think you're smarter than God. Listen, the longer I walk with God, the more I realize, oh, he knows what he's doing. All right. See, I, the longer you walk with God, the more willing you become. Let's abandon my plan. Okay, Lord, what are you up to? Because <laughs> that's the better one. I line up with his values, you see. Um, I, I've, I, I've changed a lot over the years to know Jesus. Yeah, haven't you, Maria? Yeah, me too. I've changed a lot over the years to know Jesus. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Life with Jesus is so much better than life without him. But then I think about how much Jesus has changed in order to be my friend. And I can't even begin to fathom that. The distance between heaven and earth, the distance between God and human beings, like, and that Jesus would become one of us. Like, we can't even, we can't even wrap our minds around the distance that he had to travel, how much he had to change in order to become like us. See? So I think about all that Jesus has changed in order to be my friend. And I think about how I've changed over the years in friendship with him. I think I've got the better end of that deal, quite honestly. So with these two precepts laid down, right? Truth and grace always stay together. And healthy relationships have boundaries. These two important principles. Now we can come into Leviticus and appreciate better how God's grace plays out in the pages, okay? The first one that we see is this, that God's grace, it makes room for anyone. And you see this right away in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. And if you have your Bibles, you can open with me. We'll spend the rest of our time sort of surfing through Leviticus. And Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, starts right off like this. The Lord called to Moses. Remember last week we learned that the Hebrew there is actually a pretty beautiful word. It's the word waikra, and it means God continued speaking. Remember the story that we've learned from Pentateuch? Genesis opens up with God speaking, creating. Exodus opens up, God's silent. The people are enslaved and God is silent. They can't, they don't hear him. But then Leviticus opens up and God continued speaking. Awesome. So this is Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. This is grace. Notice that Leviticus does not open up with God yelling at us or castigating us for doing something wrong. Notice it doesn't open up with God saying, okay, here's the list of rules you've got to follow, people. Not at all. It opens up with God extending an invitation. Hey, would you like to come to me? This is how you can come to me. You, you bring something from your herd, bring something from your flock, and come on, let's talk. This is beautiful. 
Um, that is gracious. And, and there's something else you got to see in this even more. Notice that when God says bring an offering from the herd and bring an offering or from the flock, those represent two different levels of wealth. Something from the herd would be a bull or a cow. Those would be extremely expensive. Oxen. And, and not everybody had something from the herd. And then something from the flock, that would be a sheep or a goat. And most people had something like that. And so isn't that interesting that God says, hey, if, if you want to come to me and you've got something from the herd, bring that. If you can, bring something from the herd. But if you can't bring something from the herd, how about you just bring me a goat? And here's what's really cool. Look at verse 14. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. Isn't that awesome? If you can't afford to bring a bull and you can't afford to bring a goat, can you catch me a pigeon? Isn't that beautiful? See what I mean? There's room for anyone. God makes room for anyone in his presence. You, 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 I think it's awesome that he does that. And then notice three times in chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 13 and verse 17, the same phrase gets repeated. It's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter. If you're, coming from the, if you're bringing an offering from the herd, if you're bringing an offering from the flock, or if you just caught a pigeon and you're bringing it, God, God goes, oh, I like that. I love you, and I love your offering, and I love our time together. Oh, that's sweet. That's grace. Isn't that encouraging to you and to me? You know, I know sometimes we, 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 we might think that I don't have as much to offer to God as somebody else does. You ever thought that? I don't have the talents that that person has, or I don't have the money that that person has, or I don't have the, the, the position, you know, in life that that person has, right? I, I'm just a nobody. I, I don't have, what do I have to offer to God? God says, can you catch me a pigeon? And your aroma will be pleasing. He receives it. <sighs> pleasing to the Lord. This, my friend, is Grace. And the same, it worked for them in Leviticus. Isn't that interesting? This is Leviticus. This is the book that everybody thinks is so hate-filled. And here's God making room for anybody. Come into my presence and enjoy our time together. The same is still true for you and me. The same God who gave such extravagant wealth to King Solomon was deeply moved by the widow's might. So whether you're bringing millions or you're bringing a mite, it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It's the first thing. So God's grace makes room for everyone and anyone in his presence. The second principle that we see about God's grace in Leviticus is this. God's grace empowers us to change while giving us the freedom to fail. It's not an excuse it's just I have the power to change 
and the freedom to fail in the process. You know, God calls us to holiness, but how many of you know that you're going to fail along the way? You ever failed in your efforts to pursue the Lord? Absolutely, every day. And God gives us the freedom to do that. And we see this in chapters 4 through 7. Now, we can't read all three of those chapters, uh, but if you just sort of glance through them while I'm talking about it, that would be awesome. But start with chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally, unintentionally, see that word? Sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, dot, dot, dot. Here's what you do. Stop right there for a second. Unintentionally, just because you didn't mean to do it doesn't mean you're not responsible. Well, we don't like that in our society, do we? Just because you didn't mean to do it doesn't mean you're not responsible. And then you notice that it then begins to, he begins to separate this and talk about specific groups. So starting with verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, well, then he's supposed to do this. And then verse 13, if the whole Israelite community sins, then they're supposed to do that. And in verse 22, when a leader sins, well, then he's supposed to do this. And then in verse 27, if a member of the community sins, they're supposed to do this. Notice? So he breaks it all out, and I think it's interesting. You notice that God holds leaders to a higher standard. You, you catch that as you're reading through this. Holds leaders to a higher standard. Um, and then in chapter 5, he spells out some specific sins. And then chapter 6, he outlines how these offerings are to proceed in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And so here's the deal. Remember, truth and grace stay together. So you didn't mean to do it, but you still sinned, making you guilty. This is truth, isn't it? But here comes the grace. God says, I've made a way for that to be taken care of. Let's, here, here's what you do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. That's grace. See, grace is never an excuse to sin. Never. In fact, the Apostle Paul urged the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul said, do not receive God's grace in vain. Don't receive it in vain. It's, it's not an excuse. In fact, grace is a motivation to grow. It's a reason to pursue holiness, knowing that when I fail, God's got it covered. But I can get back up again and keep on running. And when I fail, God's got it covered. And then I get back up again and keep on running. Grace motivates me to change. It empowers me to change by giving me the freedom to fail. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Again, can I just bring this out again? I feel like part of our purpose in this study of Leviticus is Leviticus has been the brunt of a lot of injustice in the Bible. And I'm just saying, Leviticus. Ain't that cool? Okay, so third thing we learn about grace is this. Grace received then becomes grace shared. Grace received becomes grace shared. This is the thrust of chapters 17 through 27 in Leviticus, and we definitely will not read all those today. Chapters 17 through 27, um, some scholars outline the book of Leviticus in two big chunks. 
They say chapters 1 through 16 deal with us loving God. And you think about the movement of those chapters. It starts with God saying, hey, you want to come to me? Okay, here's how you do this. And then let's take care of that sin problem you've got. And then God sets up the priests. The priests are there to help people, to bridge the gap, so that they can come into the tabernacle and connect with God. So this is chapters 1 through 16. And then chapters 17 through 27 deal with loving everyone else. Because he talks about purity laws, he talks about laws that affect society, how we deal with each other. So, so the first half of the book is us loving God. The second half of the book is us loving everyone else. The first half of the book is us receiving the grace of God. The second half of the book is us sharing the grace of God as we go through life. Does that make sense? In other words, grace received becomes grace shared. Those who have received God's grace, those who have been delivered from slavery, those who know what it is to be forgiven, who know what it is to enjoy God's presence, like we're the ones best positioned to share that grace and hope and blessing with the rest of the world. Does that make sense? See, followers of Jesus, we, we ought to be some of the most gracious people on the planet because we of all people know what it is to be losers and to have received the forgiveness and the kindness and the restoration and the healing and the freedom of God. Does that make sense? Therefore, we can share that with others. Those who have received grace can share grace. Um, let me just take a look at a couple of examples, show you some of my favorites. There's a bunch, but here's some of my favorites that stand out. Leviticus 19, if you flip over to chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. I like these two. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. So in essence, God's asking them to be sloppy farmers. See, you're supposed to leave stuff behind. You're not supposed to pick all the grapes. You're not supposed to pick all the, all the tomatoes, all the whatever. You're supposed to leave, leave stuff behind because there's people that don't have that kind of resource. And this helps to care for them. See? I think that maybe a modern equivalent to this is something that I saw some of you guys do last year when you received your, uh, what I call the anti-stimulus check from the government, you received that, you know, and, and I know a number of you donated your entire check to our Good Samaritan Fund, to our Benevolent Fund, because your attitude was just like this. You said, you know, I, I haven't lost income, and so this is extra. And so let me just give this in its entirety. And, and that wasn't just one or two of you. That was a number of you that did that. So you're, you're living out this principle, which is pretty cool. So kudos to you. See? And here's the second one. Here's another one I like. Verse 13, uh, chapter 19, verse 13. He says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. You know that the lowest person in society back then was actually not the slave, it was the day laborer. A slave had a guaranteed place to live, guaranteed meal, might not have been the greatest, but it was guaranteed. 
A day laborer was someone who was actually not committed to working for someone, but they would actually work in this guy's field that day, that guy's field that day. They kind of worked wherever they could find a job. And the day laborer depended on being paid at the end of that day so that I can eat that night. And you see how he says this here? Now listen, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Make sure you feed him so that guy can eat tonight. I love that. Grace received, grace shared. Uh, verse 15, look at verse 15. Uh, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality, partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Wow. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. That's interesting, isn't it? Boy, our justice system could really use chapter 19, verse 15. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. And then you move into chapter 25. Um, chapter 25 talks about the year of Jubilee when all the debts get settled. And the year of Jubilee, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, but it was actually a gigantic reset button on society. It, you know, it, it guaranteed that the rich didn't just keep getting richer off the backs of the poor, and the poor didn't just keep getting more and more poor. It was a reset button. The year of Jubilee, land went back to the original owner, debts were canceled, everybody got a fresh start. It was beautiful. But here we find in chapter 25, verses 38 to 40, he says this, uh, verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Do you see the grace there? They didn't earn the land of Canaan, did they? I gave it to you. That's very important. Remember that. It was given to you. And then he says, verse 39, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. So, so do you see grace received? I gave you this land. God, God says, you didn't earn this. I gave it to you. And because it was given to you, when you see a brother who happens to fall on hard times, and that happens, then what's your responsibility? What's your privilege as someone who has been blessed and given something? It's my privilege and responsibility to share that with them, to not mistreat them, to help them get a leg up, to get back on their feet again. Beautiful, isn't it? Grace received becomes grace shared. This is what motivates our outreach as a church. Do you know that? That it's, it's why as a church we give 10% of our operating income away as a church. We give it away to other organizations. Some, many of whom are right here in town doing good things, not even necessarily churches. We just find organizations that are doing a good work and bless them, support them, work together with them. It's why we generously support families of Bowers Elementary School as a church. It's, it's why we've delivered, catch this, since January, we've delivered over two tons of food to families in the Manchester area. Two tons. I, I know because Jack does the deliveries a lot, and he weighs the boxes 
50, 50 pounds a box, you can do the math. Right, Jack? Two tons. It's amazing. It's why, it's, why, it's why in the last 25 years as a church, we've given away 16 cars and two motorcycles. Because the Lord's blessed and we give. It's why we built a school in Managua, Nicaragua that now educates 450 plus children in a Christian education. It's why our grow zone put together Easter baskets and they visit the nursing homes and they give their things away. It's why. It's why we judge people who have, it's why we don't judge people who have problems. Grace received. It's, it's why we don't beat you up if you're a bonehead. Grace received. We got a few boneheads in New River Church and we love them. You know? Your pastor's one of them, so there we go. Grace received. Grace shared. It's, but remember, grace and truth stay together. So we can love, we can love and call out sin at the same time. That's a mistake that a lot of people make. They think just because you call something sin, oh, now you're being judgmental. Not necessarily. Grace and truth stay together. So I can love you and call out sin at the same time. We can enjoy relationship with God and still understand there are boundaries we can celebrate the grace of God and still call one another to high standards. Still call one another to pursue holiness. Still call each other out when we're faltering. Listen, the grace of God. Every healthy relationship has boundaries. Just because I, I know that I've got to discipline myself in certain areas, that doesn't mean that I'm not under grace. It's just an acknowledgement that I'm in a relationship and for that relationship to be healthy, there are boundaries that need to be kept. Isn't that amazing? You see that? See, who would have ever thought that the book of Leviticus could teach us so much about grace? And yet, there it is. Now, next Sunday, we're going to dig into the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. So if you want to read chapter 16 in advance, you can. Uh, or if you haven't got one of the journals, I encourage you to get one. We still have a few um, left. But as we study Leviticus from here on out, we always want to keep in mind holiness and grace. These two are the underpinnings of our whole study. God calls us to holiness, and God gives us grace. And these two things come together in our study of Leviticus. God demands that we be holy, and he gives us the grace to make it happen. <laughs> I just want to just close with just making this personal, okay? So here's how we see grace in Leviticus. God invites us in. This is chapter 1. He invites us in. You want to come to me? Here's how you do it. And then God makes a way for our sin to be forgiven. This is chapters 4 through 6 that we talked about. And then God says, okay, now let's take this grace to the rest of the world. That's chapter 17 through 27. This is grace in Leviticus. You know, many of us don't think about how much grace is required to put up with us. Can I be honest? We don't always think about how much grace we require. Maybe because it's painful. Maybe. Maybe the truth of that is painful. But I would suggest to you, 
that it's the key to you maturing and growing and finding freedom and deliverance to acknowledge how much grace is required, how much you require grace, and then to receive it because God gives it. See, As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have that means given to you. It's available to you. The world doesn't have that. If you take God out of the equation, how else do I deal with the sin and the problems that surround us? See, I have to project those onto other people. The more that I can make somebody else look bad, the better I feel like I look, see? That's, that's how the world plays that game. But as followers of Jesus, we can say, you know, no, 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 look it. I'm responsible. I'm a jerk. I know that. And thank God for his grace. I can be honest with my failures and my shortcomings and then turn to the Lord and call upon his grace and know that I receive it. Do you see that? This, this is a beautiful gift that God's given to us. So I want to leave you with a little challenge as I, as I pray. Uh, yeah, you can come on up, Katie. So I think my wife looks pretty today. Um, but uh, so... I want to leave us just with this challenge here, okay? Here's a, ask your friends or ask your spouse, someone who's close to you, ask them this question, um, am I easy to deal with? Because I, I, want to get, I want to get a proper assessment of how much grace I require. Does that make sense? How much grace do I require? Am I easy to deal with? You know, it could be a really eye-opening conversation. But just know this, that anything they say, there is grace for whatever they say. Right? Praise God, right? Praise God. At least it brings a little bit of honesty into the picture. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.